There's a story about a man who wanted to change the world. He gave it everything he had and realized, okay, that was a pretty big goal. I mean, who really changed the world, changes the world? So he scaled down his ambition. And he thought, if I could just change my country, well, that's still a pretty big task, especially with our country and the state that, is it, that, that it's in. So he thought, I'll scale down my ambition a little more. If I could just change my city, well, then I will have made a dent in my life, will have mattered. And he realized he couldn't even change his city. So he thought, well, maybe I can just change my church. If I could just change my church, well, he realized he couldn't even do that. And he thought, well, uh, that's still a pretty big task. Maybe if I can just change my family. But he couldn't even change his family. And by now, this young man is no longer an old man, a young man. He's now an old man. And finally, he's on his deathbed and he's reflecting upon his life. And he says, what a fool that I've been. If instead of trying to change the world or my country or my city or my church or my family, if instead I would have allowed God to change me, then with a transformed heart, then God through me could have changed my family and through my family could have changed my church and through our church could have changed our city and through our city we could have changed our country and through our country we could have changed the world, but it began with me. We're looking at the origin story of David. Who changed the world? But it was only because first and foremost, he allowed God to change his heart. Listen to what God said about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And we read, And when he had removed from him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, listen to what God says about David. Could you imagine if God wrote your epitaph, what's engraved upon your tombstone? And this is what said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Yes, David slew giants. And yes, David led a revival. And yes, David changed his country. And yes, he changed the world. But it's because he was a man after God's heart who, will do, who would do all of God's will. But here in this passage, we also see that God contrasts the heart of David with the heart of David's predecessor, King Saul. King Saul was removed, and in place of King Saul, he raised up David. And so in this sermon, as we're walking through the origin of David, David's life before he became king we're going to see that God contrasts in Scripture King Saul and King David. In fact, starting in early on in 1 Kings, around 14 on until David finally becomes king, we're talking well over 10 or 12 chapters that God allocates to contrasting these two hearts, King Saul, whom he removed, and King David, whom he raised up. King Saul left a wake behind him, and David left a wake behind him. You know what a wake is. If you're in a boat and you're cruising around, you look behind the boat, the boat leaves a wake. The boat causes the water to split behind it. And so it is with every life. We all leave wakes behind us. King Saul left a wake. King David left a wake. King Saul's 
wake was his legacy. David's wake was his legacy. And so it is with us. What we leave behind us in terms of blessings, in terms of examples, in terms of relationships is our wake. And our wake is our legacy. And we can't choose the legacy that we want to have just by choosing it. A legacy must first be lived. We leave the legacy that we live. King Saul had a pattern in his life, and he lived this pattern, and he left a legacy. David had a pattern. He lived this pattern, and he left a legacy. So let's contrast King Saul with King David. Two men could not have been more opposite. Though on the surface of things, they might have had some similarities. They were both handsome. They both had a leadership disposition. You notice King Saul's leadership disposition right off because of his stature and his countenance, Scripture tells us. David was the younger and overlooked of eight brothers, and once you looked at David through a different lens, you realize, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. He can be a leader too. On the surface of things, they both had a leadership disposition. The Scriptures say they were both handsome, But that's just the surface of things. Their lives, especially their hearts, were in contrast. Not just in contrast, these men were in conflict with one another. Like two alpha dogs who could not be in the same backyard. King Saul and David, before he became king, could not be in the same kingdom. King Saul's personality was characterized by an ego that was larger than his stature, and his ego filled the entire, not just room, but the entire kingdom. He was egotistical and he was insecure, and know that those two characteristics go hand in hand. The most egotistical person is the most insecure person. He could throw spears, but he was very thin-skinned. And he couldn't take criticism or threats. He was filled with fear. And he was filled with bitterness. Now David, he was never presumptuous. He was humble. He was meek. He would never grab for authority. He would never grab for position. It would have suited David just fine. In fact, David would have preferred to have been Saul's most loyal person in all of Saul's cabinet, but Saul would not have it. David was meek. David was humble. However, it was clear to everybody that God's presence was in David and God's promise of a kingdom was upon David. And because of this very definite aura, they were indeed two alpha dogs who could not be in the same backyard. And so Saul began throwing daggers literally at David. Saul was the king, David was the shepherd boy turned war hero, and as a result, David was on the run. So Saul was the imposter king, and David was the invisible king. Saul was the imposter king because he had a crown, he had a throne, he had a kingdom. He looked like the real deal, but he was only an imposter because God no longer had Saul's undivided attention. And because of that, Saul 
no longer had God's blessing. He was an imposter king. David, on the other hand, was the invisible king. He had no crown. He had no throne. He had no kingdom. He didn't even have a home when he was on the run from Saul. But God had David's undivided attention. And as a result, David had God's blessing. So Saul started throwing daggers at David, and David was on the run. And we know these four or five years of David's life as his wilderness years or his pre-king years. David knew them only as everything has turned into a nightmare, and he has to look over his shoulder every day of his life. And only through the promises of God, clinging to the promises of God, is there hope in his heart. So let's contrast King Saul and King David and measure our lives against their heart. And by the end of the sermon, pray, God, take all of my heart, less of me and more of you until there's none of me and it's all of you. Take all of my heart so that, like David, you have my undivided attention. And as a result of that, we know that by default, we will have God's blessing and we will be a changed life. And the momentum of Christ will shine through us and God can indeed change the world through us. The first contrast that we see about Saul and David, and we're, we're going to approach this in a very interesting way. We're going to look at it historically through 1 Samuel, and then we're going to look at the psalm that David wrote in that season of wandering and wilderness and being on the run as King Saul with three to 5,000 men were hunting him down. In each of these uh, historical instances that we look at, David the king, the renaissance man who was a master of so many things, actually took time. He didn't take time. It was actually his lifeline he desperately needed to, to praise God in this season. And this is how we get many of the psalms that were written in this context of his life. Can you imagine that? And in, in the most intense season of his life, David actually journals and writes, or the Holy Spirit through him, the greatest poetry in the history of the world. So let's look at the historical context in 1 Samuel and then the psalm that David wrote in this season to give us a closer glimpse into David's heart so that we'll be motivated to surrender our life to God. So first contrast that we see is that King Saul craved praise, his own praise. King David simply craved God. King Saul craved praise, his own praise, whereas David craved God. 1 Samuel chapter 18, and let's pick up with verse 6. As they were coming home, this is after David killed Goliath, and now David is a war hero, and he's one of Saul's generals, and he takes armies out into battle, and he comes back, and one time they were returning home, David was returning home, Saul was returning home, there was a, a, a big parade, a processional that was welcoming them, verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Don't you know that Saul liked this? Because we're going to see he needs to be liked. He needs to be praised. 
Verse 7. And the women saying to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul's eating this up. And David his tens of thousands. Saul's heart sank. And at that moment, his heart was filled with jealousy and insanity would soon follow. Bitterness, envy, jealousy, open a door to a lack of soundness in our thought process. Verse 8, Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him and said, they've ascribed David tens of thousands and they've ascribed thousands to me. And what more can he have but the kingdom? From that point on, Saul eyed David. And this was eyeing him with hatred, with distrust, and with jealousy. David didn't play that game. I wonder what their real motives are. I wonder what they're really thinking. I think analytical, discerning, and analytical people have a great strength of being discerning and analytical, but the weakness is to try to read between the lines and always think that you know what other people's motives are, and reality is nobody knows other people's hearts. We don't even know our own heart. David didn't play that game. I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what they're really up to. I wonder if they're going to do that, so maybe I should position myself and posture myself to do that in defense against this. He just focused on God. He didn't need anybody's approval of him. He simply craved God. And because of Saul's jealousy and insanity, he tried to kill David. David was on the run. Saul's men were hunting him down. David enters into the wilderness. And he writes in this season, Psalm chapter 63. He had to leave his wife. He had to leave his home. He had to leave his dad. He had to leave his family. We know this as David's pre-king days, David simply knows this is a terrible shift in his circumstances, but he's not concerned about any of those things as much as he is concerned about simply craving God. And he penned in the wilderness, Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He, he diverted his gaze from the power of this world and the corruption of this world and the divisiveness of this world, and he just focused on God's power and God's glory. In verse 3, on God's steadfast love, which he said, is better than life, my lips I will praise you. He had a choice to wring his hands and to worry and to lose sleep or to praise God for his love and his faithfulness and his power. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see how David defines success? Success is not what other people think or say or do. Success is his heart fixated upon God's love and power and him praising God. And he found that his soul found more satisfaction in being fixated upon God than his soul could find while even being in the palace. Verse 5, 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. No matter what valley of the shadow of death we are walking through, there is joy reserved for the person who will divert their gaze from the news and the newspapers and the corruption and the gossip and the slander and the he did that and she did that and he said that and she said this and what are they thinking and why do they look at me like that to Jesus Christ whose love and faithfulness and power never fails and we praise him and no matter what's raging around us our soul feasts upon the faithfulness of God verse 8 my soul clings to you and don't you know that God is a defender of that person? Don't you know that God is close to that person? Don't you know you better not mess with or talk about or go around the back of that person who's making God his refuge and his trust? Don't you know that God is with that person and for that person and no mountain is going to stand in the path of that person and sovereign doors are going to open wide open for that person? Verse 9, David remembered Saul and his injustice and those who were chasing him. He just brushed it off. Ah, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Not, not through David's sword, not through David's might, not through David's savvy, not through David's political maneuvering, but because he knew his heart was fixated upon God. God had his back. Verse 10. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king... And he's calling it. He's not king yet, but he will be king. The king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The first contrast between Saul and David is that Saul craved praise. David just craved God. The second contrast is that Saul clung to position and power more tightly than if somebody were drowning and they threw them a life raft and the drowning victim clung to that raft more desperately than that, Saul clung to position and power. Not David. David knew that whatever you cling to will be taken from you. David simply clung to God's promises. Let's go back to First Samuel chapter 21. In our biographical account of this, and we'll pick up in verse 10. And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, now notice, have you ever seen those movies where a policeman is, uh, for some reason, thrown in prison? And so he has to go to prison, and this cop has to walk through the courtyards surrounded by all of these people that he put behind bars. This is David's situation. He was a warrior in the court of King Saul. He went to battle on behalf of Saul and Israel, and he struck down many, many Philistines. He struck down many, many of Israel's enemies, and now he is with no home. He can't go back to Israel, and now he's wandering in the wilderness, and here he's wandering in the territory of people that he went to battle against and destroyed. Verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, the king of Achish, is this not David, the king of the land? 
Do they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands? David heard about it. He took these words to heart. He was much afraid. Again, this is the, this is the context. He's like, a, he's like a cop that was thrown into prison in the courtyard, surrounded by people he put behind bars. It's like a cat walking on the, on the fence. And on this backyard, there's German shepherds. And on this backyard, there's pit bulls. And that cat is just walking very carefully. This is David's situation. Verse 13. Watch what he does. This is, this is a seriously low point for David. He changes his behavior before them all. And he pretends to be insane. He's in their hands, he pretends to be insane, and he makes marks on the door. He's clawing, and he lets spit run down his beard. And he's acting like he's out of his mind. And then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I not have enough madmen that you brought this guy to me? I don't need a madman into my presence. I've got enough of them. Get him out of here. This is a low point. In order to make it, he is so having to degrade. He's rolling around on the ground. He's clawing the walls. He's spitting down his chin. He's acting absolutely insane. While Saul is clinging to his position, David is at an all-time low, but he's not focused upon his circumstances because David knows his present condition is not his final destination. Saul is trying to hold on to his present situation, clinging to his position for dear life. David has hope because he's simply clinging to the promises of God. And he knows, though he is humiliated, though he is degraded, his present situation is not his final condition. Because this place, the world sees it as a pit. He sees it as a catalyst, a launching pad. Because when all you have are the promises of God, God will see to it that those promises will in due season become your reality. The psalm that David wrote in this season, Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. Many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I shall trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil for me. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They've waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? He's turning justice to God. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You think, well, how can David be such a man of God if he prays for God's wrath to be cast down upon people? Because in entrusting justice to the true judge, that frees David up to simply love his enemies. Verse 8. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. He started afraid, maybe when the night began. But by the time he fell asleep, he didn't stay afraid. His heart was at trust in the Lord. Like a child who's weaned with his mother, he clung to the promises of God. He made God's promises, his future reality, by entrusting his present situation 
is not his final destination. He drenched his pillow with tears. But by the time he fell asleep, verse 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And he realized his greatest responsibility was not to get back. It was not to get even. It was not to promote himself. It was not to exalt himself. It was simply to worship God. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from failing. That I may walk before God in the light of life. The first contrast, King Saul craved the praise of people. David craved God. The second contrast, Saul clung to position. David simply clung to God's promises. And the third contrast, Saul had a false humility. Now, when Saul first steps onto the pages of Scripture, as Samuel looked at Saul, Samuel liked Saul because Saul looked like a king. He acted like a king. His stature, his appearance, he was handsome, all of these things. He looked the part. Samuel the prophet said, this is the guy. And the people chose according to the flesh. And Saul had this false pretense, and he probably would have fooled us as well because Saul said, who am I? Who am I to be king? I'm from the least, etc., etc." But if you really read between the lines, you know that it's a false humility because anybody who's really proud of their humility is not really humble. You guys know that, right? Anybody who's proud of their humility is not really humble. And out of Saul's false humility flowed division. He was extremely divisive. Are you for David or are you for me? It was extremely divisive, and behind that division was destruction. David, on the other hand, had true humility and Christ-like character and compassion toward others always flows from true humility. Let's look at the historical context of the fruit of their humility and pride. 1 Samuel 22, and let's pick up with verse 16. And we read, a little context here, David's on the run, he doesn't have a sword, he doesn't have a weapon. He goes into a temple. Uh, He needs some food. The priest said there's no food, but there's there's bread that's reserved for ceremony. And David said, let me eat that. He eats it. He nourishes himself. He gets some protein in him. He's famished. And he asks the priest, is there there a sword around here? I'm, I'm, I'm in haste. And David's reputation precedes himself. And the priest said, no, there's no sword except for Goliath's sword. We have it here kind of like in a museum. Uh, You killed Goliath, and we have the sword. And David said, I'll take it. There's none like it in all of the land. And so this priest gives king refuge. This priest gives David refuge. David and his men continue on. And then Saul hears about it, and he's not happy. Verse 16, the king said, Saul said, You shall surely die, Amalek. You and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by, turn and kill the priest, all of them. And the guard said, I'm not going to do it. So King Saul turns to somebody else and says, you kill him. And that day, King Saul kills 85 priests, their wives, their parents, their children, their infants. The man has gone insane. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Verse 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day 
when Dog the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And then he tells this guy, stay with me, don't be afraid. He who seeks my life seeks your life with me, you will be safe. You see the contrast? Saul had a false humility, and it resulted in division. Who are you with? David or Saul? And anybody who may possibly be associated with David, they destroyed. False humility always produces divisiveness and destruction. David had true humility, and from that flowed character. He took responsibility that he didn't have to own up to, but yet he owned that responsibility. And he also had compassion for anybody who was on the run. In fact, that we read about David, that when David was on the run, everybody who was an outcast, everybody who was afraid, everybody who was on the run, every ragamuffin, every weary person gathered around David. And before you know it, David looks up and there's about 400 men gathered around him, outlaws and bandits and ragamuffins, and David turns them into a mighty army. So he provides safe haven and refuge And I believe this is the telltale sign of being a true follower of Christ. Do we have true humility? Or are we divisive and destructive? And just keep this in mind, especially as we enter into election seasons. Yes, we have a conscience. And yes, we vote our conscience. But pray for people on both sides of the aisle. And make sure that, above all, your friends know that before you're this political persuasion or that political persuasion, make sure, above all, that people know that you love Jesus and you care about their soul and that your relationship with Christ is the most important thing in your life. And that your passion for the true solution to our government and to our land is not found in the White House, but it's found in the church when followers of Jesus Christ are repenting and seeking Christ and sharing the gospel with everyone everywhere. Make sure people know that your true political persuasion is not a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, but it's the King of Kings who rose from the dead on our behalf, and he's seated in heaven, and he's coming back for us. Make sure that that is where your heart is. And yet saying that, I am grateful for people who are politically involved. And vote your conscience and vote biblically, but know that the true solution is not in the White House or Capitol Hill. It's Christ. The psalm that David wrote in this season, Psalm 52, is Saul's false humility was manifesting itself in division and destruction, and David just continued to walk in humility, owning up to things, exercising true character, displaying compassion to outlaws and waywards and ragamuffins. David penned this, Psalm 52, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? We know he's thinking of Saul. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, and all those who spread lies about David. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what's right. You love all words that devour, oh deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. Again, how can such a man of God pray these words, but God will break you down forever because David is releasing justice to the true judge and that frees David up to simply love and pray for his enemies and do good 
The sacrifices of God, verse 17. Actually, I'm sorry, uh, verse 5, chapter 52. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. David is not relishing that, but he knows the law of gravity. If you step off a building, you're going to fall down. And he knows the principles of God. If you walk in exaltation, if you put yourself first, if you devise evil, if you dig a pit, you're going to fall into the pit that you dig for others. If you throw a rock, you're going to get hit by that rock. But if you walk in humility and Christ-like character, God cannot resist exalting you for his own glory and his own namesake. Verse 6, the righteous shall see in fear you fall into your own pit and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge. This isn't a laugh like he's rejoicing in it because when Saul did die, it broke David's heart. It's more of a laugh like almost a, a disbelief. He trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But David knew like the law of gravity, the pride will the prideful will fall, the humble will be exalted. Verse 8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name. He hasn't done it yet, but he's so sure that he's done it. He's already saying, you have done it. And I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And then... The final contrast between Saul and David is that Saul's heart was filled with bitterness, hatefulness, and harmfulness. And David's heart was at rest, at trust in the Lord, and filled with graciousness and honor, even honor to his enemies. David never let a harmful word escape his mouth to the king who was trying to kill him. Is that not honorable? David never allowed a harmful word, a dishonoring word, to escape his lips about the king who was trying to kill him. Because his heart was at rest and at trust in the Lord. And just a, an aside, a teaching time for our church family. Let this, as a church family, allow our censors to be keen to uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who might try to divide us from time to time. If Satan led a revolt against God in heaven, if Satan led a, re a revolt against God in the Garden of Eden, if Satan led a revolt against God through King Saul, if Satan led a revolt against Jesus through Judas, if Satan led a revolt against the Apostle Paul and the churches that he began, who are we to think that Satan will not attack us in the same manner? Satan's motto is, if you can't beat them and he can't beat us, join them. And he will join us. And so let these contrasts between Saul and David allow our discernment to be keen to wolves in sheep's clothing. 
the context of Saul's bitterness, harmfulness, and hatefulness versus David's trust, graciousness, and honor historically is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And let's pick up with verse 1 through 3. So the context, David's on the run. Three to 4,000 men are with Saul. Saul hears David is hiding out in these caves. I've actually been to these caves. It's really incredible. Picture, uh, picture this, this cave that almost looks like an amphitheater. No doubt, in this particular vicinity, um, it, you have to kind of climb down into it. It's a pit, but once you get inside, it looks like just a huge cave, and there's rocks that are downward sloping. It's almost like a mini amphitheater. And once you get down into it, you know this must have been the case that David gathered with 400 of his ragamuffins, and he would minister to them and inspire them. And then back behind that little amphitheater made by God through creation are all these tunnels and caves and you can get on your stomach and just crawl around into these mazes of caves that that are only this tall and so this is where David and his men are hiding out and so Saul hears about it so Saul and his men chase David down and wouldn't you know it it seemed that fate turned in the tide in the favor of David Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all Israel and went to seek David. Saul took the best of the best because David's a great warrior. And they were in front of the wild goat rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that very cave. Do you see what happens? Saul goes into the depths of the cave by himself to relieve himself, and wouldn't you know it, David and his men happen to be hiding in that very cave. They see Saul come in, and David's men told told him, take him. God gave him into your hands. Kill him right now. This whole thing is over. God has given you favor today. David didn't do it. He said, how can I possibly raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? And as the story unfolds, David crawls very stealth-like up to Saul. He cuts off just a corner of Saul's garment. When Saul goes outside, he's down, he goes down, he's on his horse. David walks out, and he holds up the garment, and he says, King, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why are you chasing me? I mean you no harm. I will never harm the Lord's anointed through word or through deed. David even said, my men urged me to kill you, saying God must have given you into my hands, but I am not going to harm my king. David was even cut to the heart with repentance for doing so much as tearing off the garment of Saul. This is how much David respected, not Saul, but God. He wasn't going to harm God's anointed. Saul was cut to the heart. About a five-second moment of repentance on Saul's part. But ultimately, he went back to his insanity. Here's the psalm that David wrote in this season. Psalm chapter 57. And we read. Be merciful to me, God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Until the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God, my most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. 
He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love on his faithful ones. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp as swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be be over all the earth. I think a summary of David's heart throughout all of this is Psalm chapter 34, verse 6, which he also penned in this season. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. God eventually removed Saul. It was brutal. He was killed in battle, his enemies decapitated him, pinned his body to the wall. David, being David, grieved. Got Saul's body down, his good friend Jonathan, they did the same thing to him, took his body down, gave them honorable burials. And from that point on, David always sought to see how he could show blessing and goodness and favor to anybody of Saul and Jonathan's household. Another king would have wiped out anybody in Saul and Jonathan's household so they wouldn't rise up and be a threat to their kingdom, not David. He showed goodness to Saul's house. He provided protection and refuge because his heart was simply at rest in God. So David began leading, and he was a good king. The city of David to this day still has the aura of David's presence lingering in the streets of old Jerusalem. He led well. But wouldn't you know it, David eventually had a son, or he had many sons, and one of his sons, as David is now getting old, was a very good-looking guy named Absalom. And as mankind are inclined to do, they looked at Absalom in David's kingdom and said, this must be the next king of Israel. He's about the age of David when David became king. David's about the age of Saul when David was removed from his throne. David just isn't as sharp as he used to be. He's not really able to go out in battle anymore. But look at Absalom. By the way, Absalom had this beautiful flowing hair. He was sharp, he was handsome, and he was a politician. When people would come into the kingdom, Absalom would fall on his face before them and say... What can I do? How can I serve you? I am the prince. What's my dad not doing? Yeah, I know that. We're trying trying to show him the, the light in that area. I'll be on that for you. And he began winning the people's hearts through political persuasion. Absalom finally, eventually, led a revolt against his own dad, David. David's generals surrounded him and said, let's put this revolt down. And David said, I didn't rise a hand to get here, and I'm not going to rise my hand to stay here. When the kingdom 
supposedly belonged to Saul, but it was no longer Saul's. Saul clinged to it when it was not David's yet, but in the hands of Saul, though rightfully David's, Saul was clinging for it, but David never grabbed for it. Though it was his, he never grabbed for it. And here's Absalom in the position that David was in. The kingdom did not belong to him. It belonged to David, and he grabbed for it. And in this position, though he could have been justified to behave as Saul, he continued to behave as David. And he didn't raise a hand against Absalom. Instead, in absolute humility, he got on a horse with all of his household, and he, in humiliation, left his throne and rode out of the city. And he allowed Absalom to take the throne. And David wrote Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He's at 70 at this point. The previous Psalms, he was around 25 to 30. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people. Absalom's fate was not good. Anyone who rises a hand against the Lord's anointing, who walks in humility and makes the Lord their trust, always fall into their own pit. Absalom was killed, and David once again mourned. And cried, Absalom, my son, Absalom, where art thou? What legacy will you leave? What legacy are you living? What is the general wake behind you? Before David passed the kingdom to Saul, to to his son Solomon, he wrote, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong and act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. David's words to Solomon were profound and powerful because they were tried and true, and Solomon knew it. Because a legacy is not something you leave, a legacy is first and foremost something you've lived The freshly anointed king, Solomon, knew that when the old legendary king, David, did not understand God, he trusted God. When there was nowhere to turn but God, God was there. When he had no way to go but God, God made a way. David not only penned the words of the Psalms that we read, he lived them, illuminating a path for Solomon to follow. For Solomon to prosper, illuminating a path for us to follow, for us to prosper. When David was in trouble, he prayed to God. Psalm 91 2. My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When David was attacked and slandered, he trusted God. Psalm 56 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When David was helpless and exhausted, he rested in God. Psalm 23 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
When David had fallen and he fell hard in his kingdom, he confessed to God, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, 5. When David reflected upon his life, he acknowledged God. Psalm 37, 25. I've been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. What legacy will you leave? What legacy are you living? The path you are living is your character. Your character and my character is our legacy. Billy Graham once wrote, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is, char- all is lost. Character is the sure foundation our blessings are stacked upon. Character is also the mortar that holds our blessings together. Without character, our greatest blessings, as Saul testified, as Absalom's life testifies, relationships, family, ministry, finances, houses, health, etc. Without character, our greatest blessings are exposed to the threat of sudden ruin, The sobering thing is that character is everything, but the encouraging thing is that you are not stuck with the character you have. Weak character can be strengthened. Forfeited character can be be restored. Strengthened and restored character can then be blessed beyond your wildest imaginations. Would you stand with me, please? And if we could put up Acts chapter 13, verse 22. In summary... Is this your heart? God looks at David, the son of Jesse, a man after his own heart, and says, I have found somebody who will do all of my will. As we contrasted Saul, as we contrasted David, as we contrasted David with Absalom, what is your heart like? Are you completely surrendered to Christ? So your heart goes, so your life will go. Whatever your heart has been like, whatever has been the general trajectory of your wake, it can change right now. Would you bow your heads with me, please? How many of you would say, you know what? I think that my heart has not been entirely surrendered to Christ, but I want it to be. Raise your hand high. I would just want to pray for you. Mine's raised too. Just keep your hands up. Father, you see these hands testifying we have not been entirely surrendered to you, but we want to be. We pray that you would look at us and see what you saw in David, a man, woman, boy, or girl whose heart is totally surrendered to you. Change our hearts to be totally at rest, to be totally seeking you, to be totally passionate about you, to be clinging to your promises. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. A couple of announcements. First is that this upcoming Sunday, September the 23rd, we're having an invite Sunday. The Lord has put people in all of our lives who need Christ. When somebody places their faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit enters their heart, their sins are forgiven, they are heaven-bound, God gives them a new heart, their whole lives change. And we all know people who need Christ. We are fishers of men, fishers for the souls of men. There's cards in the lobby that say, be my guest. And I just want to encourage you to hand them out to people and don't take no for an answer. 
let's see many people come to Christ. But where there is no prayer, there's simply no power. So let's pray diligently for this. And we're going to fast and pray. Fasting goes hand in hand with repenting. Getting those things out of our life that we were thinking when we said, you know what, maybe my heart's not entirely surrendered to God. Maybe there's some sin, some overt sin, some pet sin, some secret sin, some escapist sin, some resentment, some bitterness, some pride, some passivity towards the body of Christ. Whatever it is, some passivity towards seeking Christ, whatever it is, we fast and pray, we repent. So starting Wednesday, we're going to fast. Your fast is very personal. Some of you might fast from straight up food as I'm fasting from straight up food. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I just share that to uh, just to give you an example. Some of you may be fasting from social media. Some of you may be fasting from, from cigarettes. Some of you may be fasting from drugs. And after the fast, just keep it going, you know. But um, we're all fasting for something for three days. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We're not just going without. We're going without to go up to pray, to praise, to intercede for our friends whose hearts are hardened towards Christ. And then we're going to meet here Friday at 6.30 p.m. And we're going to pray together. And then we'll go break the fast together. So Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, let's fast, repent, and pray. And then 6.30, we'll be right here and pray together. Don't go to heaven alone, okay? Take somebody with you. I believe the sun is setting on our fishing trip. Have you rounded up any souls yet? Take as many people with you as you can. So here's how we're going to close out. If I've asked you to pray for people in the past, if you would come up here and just line up. And we're going to go into worship. If you need to exit, you're free to be dismissed. If you would like somebody to pray for you, then come up here and let somebody up here pray over you. If you just want to come pour your heart out to God and kneel as a newly anointed king kneels before the Lord and they're anointed with oil. So come up here to the altar and kneel before the Lord and consecrate your whole life to Christ and say, here am I, God. Use me. Use me for your glory. So there's people up here to pray for you. Feel free to make this your, your altar. Um, worship God with all your heart. Just worship him. You're also free to be dismissed as well. So let's respond. God bless you.